guys. Hi, y'all. What y'all doing? Today is Friday, if May 20th. If you didn't know, it's April, if baby. You didn't, no, not May. April. April. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I'm sitting here looking at May, uh, May 12th for this D-Loft event. But it is Friday, April 20th. Baby. Happy 420, y'all. Happy Friday. Happy payday for whoever got paid today. <laughs> that, okay, sure. So, who's here today who need a roll call? Obviously, honey. Hey, y'all. My name is Kevin. I'm trying. <laughs> <laughs> and Jermaine. Hey. And today, our guest is Miss Courtney Smith. She is the founder and CEO of Detroit Phoenix Center, which we will get into a little bit more later. But say hi to everybody, Courtney. Hi, everybody. <laughs> so today we are recording out of um, the Detroit Area Detroit Association of Women's Clubs. <laughs> Don't side at me like that. <laughs> I can't ever remember it. I think I might be dyslexic. I know it's never tested for that girl area and association i know they're two different things but like i think detroit area before i think detroit association <coughs> okay stress okay. <laughs> anyways so the question of the day shout out to parker did he come up with this yes question? he did hey parker <laughs> thank you parker um if your life was a movie what genre would it be murder <sighs> who <laughs> are you really gonna murder and get away with it right let's be Listen, I've been watching how to get away with murder. Okay. No, no, and also, like, who's going to help you? Because you're not doing that by yourself. Girl, you know she can't do it by herself. <laughs> can't do it. Murder somebody. Oh, yeah, probably not, because I'll start laughing. That's what I'm saying. You be giggling the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> Mine would be a dramatic comedy. Mine would probably be a continuous coming-of-age story. I probably would go for, like, a rom-com, just because it's, like... Sometimes I'm like, oh, let's be romantic. Let's find a man. And then it just goes down the comedy. So then it starts (laughs) being funny. (laughs) Courtney, what about you? Um, I'd probably say superhero movie. Marvel. Something like that. Yeah. I feel it. No, I'm too scary for that. (laughs) I would do a superhero movie only if I can be um, Lupita's character in Black Panther. Ooh. Or I would be like the nerd behind the computer that like helps everybody. Oh yeah, we need I a seven mile hero. I'll be the seven mile hero. Me? You heard me. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be like Rihanna character in um. In Ocean's it? Eleven. Is, well, no. is it thirteen? Thirteen. I think Jermaine gonna be out here on that horse, like <laughs> like the man that be riding the horse. <laughs> Hey, I did. I did do that horseback is the, riding. That is the. What, where did they see him on Schoolcraft? That's a Schoolcraft. Girl, too. who knows? But I, I have taken horseback riding, so you never know. Mm-hmm. You halfway there. I'm halfway there. <laughs> All right, time for some city updates. So we have a couple of events. We have um, branding and marketing your business, which is May 12th at the D Loft um, from 10 to 11:30 a.m. Um, you can find this on Eventbrite. Just um, search the D Loft. Um, so this is going to be a workshop to help business owners cooperate corporate mavens and individuals create a brand that best fits their values and vision. Um, in addition, attendees will be leaving with a better understanding of developing a solid brand that connects with consumers and potential clients while landing media placements. The best thing about this is that it's free. My favorite word. Scandalous. Scandalous. Turn your phone off. Oh. <laughs> oh. 
Um, so that again is May twelfth at the Deloft. The Deloft is in Hamtramck. Um, the next event that we have is Lawrence Tech University's Detroit Center for Design and Technology. Um, downtown to the neighborhoods talk May 9th from six to eight. Um, it's at the LTU Center. It's downtown on Woodward. Um, right next to a really good Mediterranean restaurant that I've been meaning to try, but I haven't. I'm going too soon. Um, it's all about the food. Um, so Always. this event, uh, local entrepreneurs are going are bringing businesses into Detroit, um, often focusing on just 7.2 square miles of downtown real estate. What does development mean in the city center versus its neighborhoods? How does growth impact architecture and design in Detroit? What's the benefit of being a brick and mortar location in 2018 rather than a pop-up? So this is going to be a panel discussion um, focusing on these few questions. Um, Wednesday, May 9th from 6 to 8, this is also a free event. We like free. We love free. Free, <laughs> free, free, free. Uh, and then let's s- move on to some hot topics. So this one you kind of have a personal connection to, right, yes. Jermaine? Um, so HBO is coming out with a documentary. When does it premiere? So it premieres tomorrow. Tomorrow. Uh, the episode won't be out by April 21st, but it it premieres on April 21st, I believe at 4 p.m. on HBO. Mm-hmm. But you can also stream it um, on HBO.com if you mm-hmm. have an account. Probably um, the apps and stuff too. Yes, and the app. You can stream it on there right now. Um, the documentary is called I Am Evidence, and it focuses on the untested rape kits that were found across the country. Um, Detroit. There's more than 11,000 Yes, in Detroit alone. Um, the documentary also focuses on LA and Cleveland, and there are specific women in the documentary that tell their stories, my cousin being one of them. Um, and uh, Mariska Haggerty, I yeah, think that's she was how you pronounce her yeah. name. She came for a, a panel discussion. Yes, she's also a big part of the documentary. Um, you know her as Detective Benson on SVU, mm-hmm. as well as Kim Worthy. Yes, Detective. Yes. So um, it is a very powerful, very intense documentary. There's a lot of information on there that you would be shocked to find out about um, untested rape kits being locked in an abandoned building that they were in the process of demolishing mm-hmm. um, for decades. Yeah. And these are people, these are victims who have not had a voice in decades. They have not heard from anyone in decades. And their lives were at, you know, the point of being destroyed almost mm-hmm. um, without anybody even taking a second look. And this is not just Detroit. This is nationwide where this problem has been growing and growing. And so more and more people are starting to pay attention to it and try to get it um, to a point where um, these people can at least get some resolve or the answers that they're looking for. Yeah. So the story follows um, Kim Worthy and her kind of fight to get these rape kits tested. Um, And the good thing about it is that most of them have been tested and um, a lot of uh, verdicts have come out and court processes have been done and a lot of sexual offenders have been identified. But the thing is, like, all of that was funded like by donations like the government ended up paying for very little of this so this was all funded by regular people yeah the government couldn't get it together and that comes up too like about uh allocation federal mm-hmm. funding allocation resources people so we talked about with the lca taking uh, money from dps um and just money um, being misused or misappropriated and the effects that it has on people in the city um, 
I believe this is a statistic in the documentary that says when they looked at the um, victims within the untested kits, about 80% were African-American women. Mm -hmm. um, a large population of those women were in some form of poverty mm -hmm. or could not get access to the resources and help that they needed. So these women and these victims are not looked at as people already because of their demographics. And so you're already telling them, I'm not I'm not going to consider you a person. I'm not going to investigate your case. And it gets, it gets locked away in this abandoned storage center. Feel as if nobody cares about you. Man. And it's kind of scary to think that you could like just be walking the streets and run into somebody that or run into them again. Yeah. yeah like, run into them again because... Because you, um, you never forget that face. Like, I'm convinced that none of them yeah. can ever forget, no. you know, the And they were saying, the like, I think in the cases that they've tested so far, 737 of those cases were serial offenders. Mm. But that's how they... In a lot of cases like that, that's how they usually are. Mm -hmm. Like, these people, I mean, if they were if they would rape one random person... You know what I'm saying? What yeah. would stop them from doing it to the next person? So it's a very powerful documentary. I suggest that if you have the time and opportunity that you watch it to become more aware, not just of those stories, but of the resources that are available to victims out here. Because some people are scared to go to the police and they don't know, they don't have anywhere to go to. Mm -hmm. um, Mariska was saying that when she started playing uh, Detective Benson, people started writing her letters saying, you know, I've never told anyone this, but I feel comfortable telling you because of the character that you play. So she's starting to see these stories of people who have been assaulted and they've never said anything to anyone. Mm -hmm. And she's been doing it for so long. So many. So can you imagine how many letters, ever. how many letters like she has been getting of people yeah. who have been scared to tell their stories. And even like I think it also helps too that in the show her character experiences rape on more than one occasion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they probably you know even though they know it's not real they kind of feel like okay well she can at least identify a little bit uh, with what I went through. Yeah. So this next story kind of connects um, to what you were saying, Jermaine, about um, resources not being allocated correctly in primarily a uh, person of color communities. Mm -hmm. uh, Trulia um, partnered with the National Fair Housing Act to re-examine fair housing across four metro counties uh, across the nation. So they examined Detroit. And Trulia is the, the rent, real estate the real estate site. Yeah. The real estate site. Um, they examined Atlanta, Detroit, Houston, um, and Oakland, California. Um, and they found that there's a serious lack of community necessities such as banks, health institutions, grocery stores, and parks in cities with larger populations of communities of color, um, such as Detroit. So reading the act, it's just like, it's crazy how we repeat history. Like there has to be something done about it. Like the conversation about fair housing has to be had all over again. Like we already have legislation in, pay, in place to combat this. Yeah, here we are again. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, it's crazy how even with the legislation, things can still be warped into mm -hmm. the majority's favor. Mm -hmm. And so the whole point, well, we're taught in school that the whole point of legislation is to make things fair and make things just and right and everybody's going to get an Liars. equal chance. And then you, as you become an adult, you're like, well, wait a minute. Who, like, who's <laughs> this how, do we, how do we get here? Even though it's very clear how we got here, when you look back at all the like systemic, um, uh, I don't want to say underground, but uh, I can't think of the word that you call them, but the meaning behind the meanings. Mm -hmm. um, 
and yeah looking at this report from Julia it's just it's crazy it's crazy and like what what is what are alternatively um in these areas uh, where people of color live uh, are banking establishments like check cashing services uh, and payday lenders are significantly more likely to be located in neighborhoods of, of color. <laughs> it, I mean, it only makes sense. <laughs> like, let me It's a lot of stuff like that that's set up to support failure. Mm-hmm. Like, it, re- it kind of reminds me of how, like, at casinos and stuff, you can cash your check, there's no windows, you don't know how long you've been in there, so you they're basically, like babysitting your mm-hmm. your issues so you know we us black people are known for going to get stuff that we can't afford yeah so they, they play into it racism. yeah something else interesting it says um it talked about access to health care and mm-hmm. how it is um dis- disproportionately scarcer in non-white areas than it is in mm-hmm. uh predominantly white communities and access it's crazy healthy food right just all the things that you would think are your basic human right or like your basic everyday need when you look at the numbers and you look at reports like this it's like well wait a minute this is clearly not reflective of how it's supposed to be or how I was taught that the whole civil rights movement was supposed to fight for like isn't that what this whole thing was about That's crazy. And I think if they have um, urgent care listed on here as one of the things that's like more in our areas. But urgent care is just as expensive as the hospital. Oh, yeah. The only thing convenient about urgent care is usually the hours and and the location. And that's it. I still owe urgent care some money right now. (laughs) It's not like it's, you know, that great of a thing to have. I mean, it's, it's great, but... It's not fair when certain areas only have urgent cares and the rest of them have Mm -hmm. full-blown hospitals and such. And then, like, this report also makes me think of, like, I know Serena Williams has been talking about this a lot lot in the media where um, when she was uh, getting ready to have her baby, Mm -hmm. um, she experienced a lot of racial microaggressions in the hospital Mm -hmm. to where she was telling them something is wrong. You know, I Mm -hmm. have a history of blood clots something I can't feel my leg and they're just brushing her off Mm -hmm. and black women have been saying for decades that the treatment that we receive in facilities from people who do not look like us is not proportionate to other racial uh, demographics Mm -hmm. like black women have I think black women have a higher rate of um dying during childbirth Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's significantly higher too yeah because they don't get the appropriate care and it's like if I'm going to a hospital I shouldn't have to think about because I'm black they gonna they just gonna treat me differently off rip like off top for that reason like when we were younger my mom chose to take us to hospitals out in the suburbs I went to hospitals in Troy like the entirety of my life so seeing how you get treated as a black woman at Harry Ford downtown that shit is wild it's crazy and it's like I was looking further down in the report and it talks about um, not having access to banks and credit unions and such enables individuals to save money, securely borrow funds safely and establish credit. Not only are we not going to teach you how to manage your money in high school, we're, not we're also gonna not going to give you any, 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 access, right, any access to, to, to properly manage your money. Habits. Because if you like, just think about like, there's kids in the hood now that have never been outside the hood. So all they know is what they see. Mm-hmm. So if you don't see a bank, you don't see a credit union, all you see is payday loan, you don't think that's the spot. And that's my lender. Larger, you gotta be the spot. That creates a larger distrust of 
financial institutions or a misunderstanding of how they work because you don't know. And granted, we're not saying that all banks uh, are great because <clears throat> Wells Fargo. But um, you, when you are uneducated, uneducated about how a system works, you are more likely to perpetuate more stereotypes about that system rather than going to learn about it. You know. Very very true. All right, guys. On that note, that is the last hot topic. We're going to take a commercial break, and then we are going to interview Miss Smith. Yay. Yes. You, you ain't got no sound effects still? Oh. See? Where's the applause? Right. You Listen, that. y'all. We're going to give her a second to get her sound effects together before I press stop. <laughs> what y'all say? We'll be back. Hey guys, it's Shariah, one third of the New Kids. And if you're interested in being on our show or have a guest in mind, you can check us out or email us at thenewkidsllc at gmail.com or you can follow us on all social media at the New Kids LLC and even on SoundCloud at the New Kids Detroit. All right, y'all, so we're back. Shariah tried to find the sound effects, but I failed. So if y'all want applause, woo, we're back, we're back. <laughs> Alright, so our guest today is Courtney Smith, and she's the founder and CEO of Detroit Phoenix Center. So if you want to introduce yourself to the people. Hi, my name is Courtney Smith. I'm the founder and CEO of the Detroit Phoenix Center. Um, it's a nonprofit organization that provides critical resources, support, and a safe nurturing environment for teens and young adults that are experiencing um, housing insecurity and or displacement. Sweet. So how did you um, how did you get started in this? Like did you um, like go to college, major in anything, or just how they started on your own? Um, well, I mean my background is in social work, nonprofit management. Um, so in that area from my educational realm, I'm educated, right? But I think for the Detroit Phoenix Center as an organization, it came about just me recognizing gaps, you know, that existed within our current system and wanting to bridge those gaps. Mm-hmm. And so I took a train journey. Um, I was one of 25 millennials selected to take this train journey on this fellowship program called the Millennials Train Project. It was for aspiring social entrepreneurs. I was one of the ones selected from Detroit and we had submitted a proposal about an issue that we wanted to solve in our community and mine's with youth homelessness and so I traveled the country by train and I visited um, youth service organizations all around the country and I talked with executive directors of these organizations and asked them what's working in your community um, to kind of see what we could bring back to Detroit. I also conducted focus groups with young people to see what do you need, you know, and the train, ironically, the year that I went, the train actually ended in Detroit. So it was very um, personal. It was like a full circle kind of trip. And one of the things that I noticed while I was on a train is that one of the most effective models that, you know, U.S. News reports said could end youth homelessness was the drop-in resource center and Detroit didn't have one. You know, San Francisco has about 18 and in acreage Detroit is larger than San Francisco. And so just being able to see those gaps and listening to young people say, you know, we felt like our we felt like our voices aren't heard and um, just the basic need low barrier approach to providing a social service was something that I felt like could innovate the space here in Detroit. And so to make a long story short, I was 
on the train, we had an opportunity to get a social impact grant. And so they selected about five individuals to pilot their program in their community. So I got a $10,000 grant to launch the Detroit Phoenix Center as an entity, um, as a drop-in nurturing center. Since then, it has grown to be... I didn't even know what I was getting myself into, <laughs> but that's, how, um, that's how it started. So to answer your question, um, it's definitely been a process um, through my work and everything. All right. So are you a Detroit native? Yes, I have lived in Detroit my entire life. I mean, some travels here and there, but I'm definitely yep, native. East side or west side? Um, west side. A little Definitely a Westsider. Ha <laughs> ha! Mm-hmm. Y'all know why you left me. You're so frustrated every time. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So, what was your uh, your college story like? I know you said that your background is in social work. Yep. So, uh, what's that been like for you? Um, college was um, wasn't easy for me. Um, I transferred schools a couple times to try to find out. Just trying to find myself, you know, and so, um, yeah, I don't know what kind of what kind of story. <laughs> uh, before you go on, I think that's an interesting point of view that you transfer because I don't think we get that point or we we don't get that story a right. lot. Um, you we I, I don't we didn't transfer schools, yeah. Um, so we don't have that perspective, and a lot of people that we talked to either didn't go or they went didn't finish mm-hmm. or they went. Through, to one school straight through so right. that is definitely an interesting and relevant story because I think a lot of people experience transferring um, whether it be for financial reasons whether it be it's school so fit mental health yes that is true uh, mental health just whatever uh, so I definitely think that is a valuable perspective to have yeah, so I transferred schools. I started off um, when I graduated from high school. I'm like, I don't want nothing to do with Detroit ever in life <laughs> again, right? And so I transferred. I went to a school out in North Carolina. It was a private school. Okay. It was very expensive. Um, at the time, the dorms closed during winter break mm-hmm. and and during spring breaks. And at the time, I myself had identified as an unaccompanied youth, meaning that I didn't have parents that was taking care of me Mm -hmm. and so when the school closed during breaks that meant that I didn't have anywhere to go so the winter break I ended up coming back and staying at the shelter that I lived in when I was in high school and so from then I decided like okay I need to go somewhere that has year-round housing Mm -hmm. so eastern gave me a really great scholarship, a housing voucher, whoop de whoop. I went there. I was in the honors college and I had this revelation that that this awakening through my faith and I decided that I was gonna leave Eastern because I needed to go to a faith based institution. So I went to the school called Spring Garver University in Spring Garver, Michigan and it was a very legalistic school like I didn't even know places like this still existed like in the world like <laughs> seriously like it was like everyone was like homeschooled and like they were like all republicans and like mm. it was like in class they were like literally like bring out the bible and like justify use it to justify like poverty and like they didn't let you wear like 
political church. You had to go to chapel every like day and you couldn't drink, you couldn't party. If you had a mail in your door, you had to leave the door open. And it was just like racism. And like the first week I was there, my advisor said like, um, I say this to all my students. Mm -hmm. He pulled out a noose out of his drawer and said, don't hang yourself. And I, I stayed at the school because at the time I wasn't as like radical mm-hmm. as I am now so I I, I stayed and then I left because I'm like I can't take this anymore <laughs> um, I was actually on the verge of getting kicked out because everything that they had said don't do like I did like I organized the voting drive <laughs> to bring people to <laughs> register for you know voting I like um, boycotted like their chapel services so, like I was like a radical like in their eyes right <laughs> very not you know so then I just went back to Eastern and they reinstated my scholarships and you know got back in the honors college and all that so that was kind of my college journey in a nutshell though you know in between there I got academically dismissed a few times and yeah but I made it I graduated it. with That's honors and I finished and um yeah, it was, it was a uh, college was definitely an interesting um, experience for me. So that's a breath. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that sounds like a, a very interesting experience. <laughs> so I know that you um, that you mentioned um, having come back here and stayed at a shelter here. Mm-hmm. Um, is that what kind of drives your passion for wanting to provide for the youth? Um, having have lived experience. Um, in my youth having been you know through foster care having you know have experience with yes but I think what has been different for me is also others that I've seen you know like my own siblings just seeing their journey through life and just recognizing like I was a little bit more agreeable when I was in my youth. Um, A lot of young people today um, are a lot more, um, they're a lot more vocal Mm -hmm. and, you know, they go against rigidity, like rigid rules. And a lot of the shelters are like that. And Mm -hmm. so the difference between the model that we chose to adapt was one that wasn't like that. So I was used to models that were very rigid. When I was in high school, you know, I had to have a paper sign every day that said I was in school. I had a curfew. I was the only person that I was in my freshman year of college and all my friends were hanging out and I had to be back at 10 o'clock. So it was just very rigid. So I would definitely say yes to the standpoint of that's a part of my why. But then also from a standpoint of just design um, is recognizing gaps. Okay. So is there um, any specific uh, significance behind the name or how did you come up with it? Yeah, it's just, you know, the idea of this phoenix, you know, rising from the ashes and this idea of like resilience and and grit and being reborn, um, the metaphorical creature that Mm -hmm. is. And so that's kind of the idea behind the phoenix because a lot of the young people that I work with are being reborn like every day of their lives is 
is a death element or it could be the the way that they live is life or death or but then there's this this idea of hope hope that can't fail and i think that's what i love about the phoenix is this rebirth that it never dies but it always regenerates recreates um is the perfect symbol of hope and so that's kind of what we stand for at the detroit phoenix center i like that name a lot yeah i do too so um, outside of college, what was your first job? Um, actually, I work. I I have not. Even when I got my full time job, I was still in school because I was in graduate school. Mm-hmm. So I. I can speak to that job. So I got a job working as the Youth Task Force Coordinator for the National Association for the Education of Homeless Youth and Children, where I was charged with um, developing a task force here in the city of Detroit that could work on small and tangible efforts at a macro level to end youth homelessness. So that means we partner with systems. We um, the political realm we did talk to service providers educational um institutions to work on this issue like as a round table and we worked on small tangible projects and so that was more of an advocacy coordination job and so from doing that i saw that there was definitely a need more for direct service so that job gave me set me up to be able to meet the people that I needed to make where years down the line I would begin to reconnect with them to launch the Phoenix Center. I also worked as a college coordinator. I worked as a case manager, a program manager. Like I've literally worked. So my so my scope of work doesn't necessarily, because I graduated in 2014 from college, but I've always had very professional jobs mm-hmm. because I've worked my whole college, mm-hmm. throughout college. That's a really great experience to have. And I think a lot of people don't get the opportunity to take advantage of that right. while they're in college, because especially when you're thinking about the field that you want to go into, um, it's so hard to get into that field right. as an adult without having any like prior experience. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, where do I get this prior experience yep. from? Right. Cause they'll post a job and it'll be like, we need a college degree and 16 years worth of experience. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, bro, I'm 26. Right. Like, where are we? supposed to get this experience from? <laughs> yeah. Or I think a lot of people, I know in my case, um, I had the option in school. Um, in order to graduate, I could either have worked an internship or I could have wrote a thesis. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So I wrote a thesis like that. <laughs> but you, I mean, there, there are volunteer opportunities, like even an undergrad. Mm-hmm. I remember um, being exposed to different volunteer opportunities mm-hmm. that were similar or related to what I wanted to go into different orgs and things like that. And that could kind of pipeline me to people that I needed to connect to in order to kind of build that experience. Because once you get out there in the real world, those experience starts to dwindle. And it's kind of like you either got it or you don't with that like you either need 16 years of experience or you need like 35 degrees plus the certificate and it's like well I don't have none of that so <laughs> here's this experience right though. here's this experience that I do have here's this degree that I do have let's work with that and go from there <laughs> yeah I don't think it was more I really think I, I didn't have a choice but to work because I had to support myself mm-hmm. right so if I wanted to go to college and to have a living for myself mm-hmm. I had to work three mm-hmm. or four jobs and it just was it I didn't have a choice so it wasn't an option to I mean I did internships but they always had to be paid mm-hmm. yeah. yeah um so it wasn't really an option for me but to work do yeah. you yeah. um have a day job now 
that you also work? I, I'm a full. Yeah, I work full time for the Detroit Phoenix Center. I have a salary and that's all that. Beautiful. That's so, that's yeah. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah, uh, which is something that's not common. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I would like to see more education around mm-hmm. how you could, you know, transition yourself. Not because I'm not an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, I work for a human service organization that I started. Mm-hmm. I'm not an entrepreneur because I'm not receiving profit mm-hmm. for the services that we provide. Um, we're a nonprofit organization and I report to my board of directors. Um, and I think that that's something that we definitely need to have more conversation around because it's not it's not common that you will see a nonprofit that people can see a nonprofit organization from inception to the end and mm-hmm. also in the beginning stages for me to be working a living wage, not even a living salary uh, for the organization that I started. Yeah. So, yeah. That's lit. It is. So were there any uh, professional hurdles or hard lessons uh, that you learned when starting uh, the organization? Um, a lot. I mean, I've learned so much um, since doing this work. And one of it is, you know, being a, 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 a young woman of color, navigating a space that I used to navigate as someone that has received the services, right? And now being at the table with those very people who used to um, be counselors to me, mm-hmm. you know, it's definitely interesting because it's not even, years haven't fully passed mm-hmm. since that experience for me. So it's coming to the table and just showing up and having to show up and having to work um, 10, 10 times harder because the uh, the microaggression for for ageism, you know, yeah. um, and then also when people are just kind of intimidated by the fact that wait, you know, we saw this young lady go from this to this, and I'm in this still posi- this still position. So if I'm in the meeting, you're gonna say, oh, I remember when you no. While we in this, I'm not your baby. I'm not your sweetie. I'm not none of that. Right. You know. So let's present. keep it. Yeah. Let's keep it professional. Mm-hmm. Let's keep it. You know. My you're my colleague. And so I think that's a major hurdle that I had to jump it through. And then even with some of my own insecurities to push past that to recognize to myself like look like you show up in the world and this is not like that experience informs the work that you do, but the drive that I have to run my organization as a professional businesswoman that has acumen, that has the same credentials to be able to secure nearly a half a million dollars for my organization mm-hmm. was because I have what it takes to do what I do as a CEO. And so I think the the space is definitely oversaturated with millennials, which is a great thing. You know, we we do what we do and we we go hard. But the idea of being able to have something that's sustainable that's not a community service project, which community service projects are necessary, mm-hmm. um, is is hard because I often feel isolated in this space because I can't necessarily relate to the the CEO at this organization that has, you know, all these employees and they they don't have to worry about they have to worry about funding insecurities from a level but not to the same extent as we do but I can't necessarily relate to my friend who started this organization here that that does not run programs every single day but is event based you know Mm -hmm. so for me I really had to teach myself a um, how to be disciplined because I don't report to anyone I mean I report to my board of directors but I founded the organization so it's 
yeah. kind of different. <laughs> She's like, that's not in this. Right. Uh, yeah, no, seriously, you want to not say that in that way, but I mean, they're great, they're awesome, but but it's kind of different because mm-hmm. it's my why, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So just to have that discipline, and then because it's so personal to me, the work is so personal to me, to not do things that expand beyond the scope of the organizational capacity like spreading yourself to yes the and I yeah. think that that's something that I've done till this winter we ran an emergency shelter 24 hours we're the only organization that did that that haven't received any government funding so we served the same amount of young people which 19 we served we have 19 youth with not even a third of the money that they typically allocate for a service like this and it was so much work managing volunteers and just working with the youth because the young people that we work with are the hardest to reach youth they they've been living in abandoned buildings they've been living in um tents trailer parks you, you know places that just shouldn't be inhabited abandoned buildings you know one in five homeless youth are are victims of human trafficking many of them have aged out of foster care and are recycling trauma so with that comes a lot of walls and a lot of barriers many of them you know don't don't trust people mm-hmm. so i this kind of the work that i was that i'm doing it doesn't always feel good so to know that a quality service is more important to provide than how many youths are being serviced because the type of young people that we serve mm-hmm. we have to see them from the very beginning to the end because essentially we become parental figures um, to the young people. How do you balance because that's a hot, that's a heavy job. Yeah, it's really yeah, yeah, it's definitely how do you taxing. How do you balance like you, your personal life yep. and everything that you have to deal with that work? How do you decompress? How Because I feel like those are things that you have to discipline yourself yes, with as well. Yes, yes. And it's definitely a learning curve so I have a therapist that I see once a week and so mm-hmm. that was something that I knew that would be extremely important for me um to do that i'm also big in in my own faith community so just Mm -hmm. just just pulling that from that and then also i'm a writer but the reality is as a founder and a ceo i really don't have that much personal time and that's just the reality so when i do have those times i'm in therapy i'm either you know at church or i'm at home netflix and then and healing do you always see yourself so hands-on um, um no not at i i'm trying to distance i'm i'm actually trying to to not be mm-hmm. but because i am the founder mm-hmm. i'm also the case manager i'm the janitor Mm-hmm. Um, the everything you right so it, I'm right now I'm, I'm grateful to be in a space right now where I I am going to be able to hire another person mm-hmm. just actually this month and then after that to be able to hire someone that can work directly with the young people mm-hmm. so once I'm able to disconnect in that way then I'm able to focus more so on administrative things mm-hmm. but I'm happy that I was able to serve the youth at the level that I have mm-hmm. because I will never forget that. You and I think a lot a of yes. And I think a lot of executives they get to a place, at least in this work, that they are so disconnected from the population, they're creating programs that don't yield tangible outcomes mm-hmm. or they're creating programs that don't yield positive outcomes mm-hmm. or allow the young people to define their own personal measure of success. So in order to give them autonomy, um, 
me being able to be so hands-on though it pulls at my heartstrings Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's hard work i think it's important for me to have that Mm -hmm. um because it's something that you won't ever yeah. forget. So yeah. it sounds like that you're focusing a little bit more on not only providing um, like physical, you know, needs and necessities, mm-hmm. but also like actually helping to heal these children. Yeah, emotional support. Yeah. Oh, yeah. definitely. To go past that. And we have to because we have to provide a service that's holistic, right? Because mm-hmm. we're whole people. Mm-hmm. So we know, you know, from Maslow's heart, our kid needs that young people, in order for them to thrive, they need their basic needs, right? Mm-hmm. So that's our first point of contact at the Detroit Phoenix Center, which is our drop-in nurturing center, which is basic needs. A shower, food, clothing, um, laundry assistance, um, transportation assistance. That's basic needs. Everybody should have it, right? A place Mm -hmm. to stay. And then beyond that is, you know, that piece of you know mental emotional so we have partnerships with assured family services that provide counseling and psychological services um to the young people we serve we have partnerships with um the school system because we want our young people to 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 go to school mm-hmm. and to be able to graduate from school and then for that higher education piece or whatever thing that they decide to do post that high school is whether it's complete a trade or or go to a college or get a job we have partnerships with organizations that can pipeline them into that thankfully the building that we're in um, what we're in Gladstone um, they also have a theater group that's on the third floor so also encouraging our young people to connect to the community around them Mm -hmm. because we recognize that those social permanent connections are so important and for mm-hmm. young people that don't have that don't necessarily have pop all the time positive relationships or have experienced so much trauma mm-hmm. that is hard to make those connections do you find that you have a good number of because you, you you all only have the ability to house 19 people right now right so you, there's two levels to our mm-hmm. program so our emergency shelter we ran just for the winter mm-hmm. because we didn't have the capacity to do outside of it so it runs from December until April mm-hmm. so that's just our emergency shelter but then outside of that we have our drop-in resource center that we run four days a week from 11 to 7 and we serve between ages 13 and 24 okay do you find that you have a lot of uh, repeat uh, youth coming Yes. Since you're focused more on healing, it seems like. I'm yes. Sure. So because we provide a holistic service and we actually take the time to build relationship, mm-hmm. we do. Uh, the young people that even stayed in our shelter, they were there since the inception. Mm-hmm. So a lot of shelters, you know, if they're doing it just temporary, you get a long line of people come in. It's like we didn't experience that. We have the same young people that came and stayed the whole time mm-hmm. simply because of how um, intentional we are mm-hmm. with the youth. So I know earlier that you mentioned, you know, like your faith and mm-hmm. going to a faith-based school. How do you um, stay on top with that while having to deal with the, or even hearing the stories of these young people? Like, does it help you get through it or have you found it harder sometimes? Um, It definitely helps. I mean, I mean, I can't separate my, I can't separate my my faith from the work that I do because my my faith drives the work that I do to heal the you know to, to heal the sick to serve the poor the widow the orphan and so that kind of drives that social justice piece drives the work that I do um, in terms of projecting my faith onto the youth I, I'm you know that's my personal faith right mm-hmm. and so I think sometimes um, 
it definitely it definitely helps me and what I find with the youth is that many of them have their own faith you mm-hmm. know and they feel open to share that and that helps them to 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 cope with some of the mm-hmm. trauma that they've experienced as well okay so tell us about your uh, perception on youth homelessness um specifically in the city of Detroit um I definitely believe that it is a silent crisis right um it's a silent crisis for many reasons. One, um, because youth homelessness looks very different from adult homelessness, right? So you can be walking down the street and a young person can be homeless and you not know it because it's not literally someone sleeping on the street. When we're talking about homelessness, when we're talking about young people, we're talking about something that's very visible but invisible. These young people, again, are cursed surfing. They're living doubled up. They're, they're at the Starbucks. They're at Cobo Hall. They're at all these different places so they can blend in. Black and Latino youth are three times less likely to identify as homeless than a white youth. So if we continue to use language that young people don't identify with, then we'll never be able to meet a need because we can't prove that the need is there. Mm-hmm. So I would definitely say that that's one issue, right? And then another issue is that we is reporting. So it was just a study that was released last week that said Michigan has the highest number of homeless students. And Detroit has the fourth highest number, but Detroit is also the highest number of students that's not counted. And that's again because black and Latino youth are less likely to identify. So I think until we start to use language that young people identify with, until we create systems that they are not afraid to navigate, Mm -hmm. then we're never going to even begin to put a dent into the issue of youth homelessness. Thankfully, we have helped because we have a drop-in center space, which because it's not a shelter, mm-hmm. it kind of removes that stigma mm-hmm. and young people feel a little bit more safer coming to the drop-in center. So we had to actually open the emergency shelter after the drop-in resource center, which was actually better because we were actually able to built the relationship. So though the stigma was still there, they knew us as an organization, so they felt comfortable coming to that shelter. Okay. Do you feel that the language around homelessness or even the word homeless mm-hmm. should be changed or simply re-examined? I think for young people, I think it's better to use language that they identify with. And so what we do on all of our marketing materials, we never put the word actual homeless. And I had to find this out because one day I was on a bus and I typically I frequent spaces that young people frequent so Mm -hmm. I'll get on the bus I'll go to a Starbucks I'll go under the bridge and pass out our information and one time I was on the bus I was at a high school and I gave was giving out the information a young man read the information he said I'm not homeless but he is he need this information and the boy turned to him said I'm not homeless I'm living with you but he was living with him (laughs) because he was homeless and so that let me know that some when young people even think about homelessness they don't mm-hmm. think that they're homeless if they're living with somebody, with else. somebody else or if they're living in an abandoned building or mm-hmm. if they're, they don't think about that. So I think we, I don't think, I think it's less about removing words, but more about using words that they identify with. Mm-hmm. So we describe the experience itself because it is an experience. So one thing I think about the word homeless is that it is 
places a label on someone. So when we say homeless youth, it 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 identifies them by their experience and we shouldn't do that so i think that so we say youth that are experiencing homelessness um and so when we describe the experience then that makes young people um more willing to identify which is something so basic but People yeah, don't do it. But it changes the perception. It <laughs> yeah. definitely changes mm-hmm. the perception. It makes people more receptive to want yep. to engage. Yep, definitely. And are there any uh, specific resources that you think would be beneficial to helping uh, eliminate the issue of homelessness? Um, I think, you know, homelessness, you know, it's such an intersectional thing, right? So we cannot talk about homelessness without talking about race, class, poverty, Mm -hmm. gender. We can't talk about it. And I think the challenge is because we address homelessness from just housing crisis and not a systemic oppression we don't address you know um educational systems that have failed we don't address the criminal justice system that feeds into this we don't address the child welfare system i think that we have to stop talking about homelessness as an isolated issue and start talking about all the systems that also interface with you know with that system so i think um that's one thing um yes so yeah so tell us how you came up with the rise campaign and what it means to you um well the rise emergency shelter the campaign that we had started was as a result of just coming into one of the harshest winters right and and just continuously to get calls from young people that was leaving our center during the drop-in hours and didn't have anywhere to sleep at night. It was at a time where on the news, you know, we kept seeing stories of people dying from like freezing in the cold and, you know, young people being denied access to hotels despite having money to pay. So it was like, what can we do? It wasn't a thing. It was a thing for me as, as a CEO to say, look, we don't have the money to do this. But it is our responsibility to house these young people because this is what we do. So we have to create another avenue to serve them. So that's how the emergency shelter campaign was launched. Um, and so we were able to rock, to to raise money. So it was resources, inclusion, support, and education because we knew that in order to serve them again holistically, we needed a continuum of services and not just a focus on like housing crisis. All right. So that wraps up the first section here. So we're going to take a commercial break. Okay. No sound effects again. (laughs) Yay. Listen, I was running this part of the interview. So y'all could have had sound effects. We ain't got Mm -hmm. that. If you want to check out the new kids on a more individual level, you can follow me at Jermaine Pencil, that's G-E-R-M-A-I-N-E-P-E-N-T-S-I-L. You can follow Shariah at Shariah M, that's S-H-Y-R-I-A-H-M. And you can follow Honey at Honey underscore Spiffy, S-P-I-F-F-Y. Okay, so we're back. <laughs> no sound effects. <laughs> Mind you, You're last fired. episode, last episode, literally last episode was all I was sound ready. effects. <laughs> it was all sound effects. That sounds like a dog. That show. sounds like the X Files. <laughs> anyway, so Courtney, how would you encourage? Some- <laughs> 
<laughs> Y'all, I swear, I'm going to strangle Shariah on one of these episodes. Anyway, um, how would you encourage someone to start their path on giving back? Just give back. <laughs> <laughs> like, just find a need, like something practical, right? Yeah. So find a need in your community and fill that need. Um, there are so many opportunities, so many ways to, to give back. Mm-hmm. And whether, you know, find a local soup kitchen, find a faith-based institution, find a nonprofit organization that, you know, you can give back with. Or if there's a need and you're like, this is something that should happen, then take a leap and just do it. I was going to say, because I think that's a big question that a lot of people come across or at least say to themselves. Like, somebody should be doing this. Somebody should be mm-hmm. doing that. Or why isn't this being done? And it's like, well... Are you doing it? You do it. Like, you need to take that initiative. There are resources and opportunities out there for you to take that leap of faith and kind of grow and address that need. Right. But then also I see a flip side to that. Since I'm in the nonprofit sector too, I also see a lot of people reinventing wheels, right? Mm -hmm. So I know that we tend to work in silos, but if you you just do some research, right, you'll see that, you know, you, you know, Detroit is a food desert. We don't have enough urban farms, but there are people that are doing urban farming or there are people who are, you know, saving bees, like things that you want to, 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 um, to do, to do research before you actually launch out and start your own thing because we do tend to sometimes oversaturate spaces and and it ends up being counterproductive because we can accomplish more with resources that are put together versus everyone vying for the same resources Mm -hmm. to do the same thing. So Shout out to Raphael, yeah. too. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he got the Congratulations. Right. To start. Is it us foods or U.S. foods? I never. Us is foods. it us I foods? I think. Uh, no, Y'all, he's not. Us. I have such a problem with names and things because <laughs> mm-hmm. forever I've been calling it our foods and they always correct me. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure I see it's us multiple it's times. Us. Yeah, yeah, but shout out to Raphael. Day. He was a guest uh, during season one and he also did one of our events. He was a featured speaker. So shout out to Raphael doing big things out here. With the grocery store. Yeah, food insecurity and addressing that. You know, and there's so many people doing some great things. Um, And we kind of already talked about this a little bit more, but what type of mindset do you think makes someone successful in your, in this line of work and or in just in service based service based work in general i think it's to know that we can't save anyone i think that is knowing that we are service we're servants you know and the 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 more that we take ourselves out of the equation the more effective we're able to be in the work itself um, because the work is so emotionally taxing you have to be willing to serve like you have to be willing to do the hard and gritty work that you may not be recognized for so you have to have a why mm-hmm. so it's work ethic it's determination it's it's a service a servant's heart um, but more importantly i think is knowing your why you know and it doesn't have to be a lived experience it doesn't have to be you know but just knowing what that is and owning that um because when it gets hard and when the money is starting to look like it's not adding up Mm -hmm. you can't just quit because you got lives that's attached to what it is that you're doing yeah um what at this point in your journey right now what business advice would you give your past self like if you had the opportunity to say, hey girl, you know. I would definitely say um, prioritize self-care. I would say do not do things that are beyond 
your organizational scope, the scope of what your resources are. Um, because being in this work, we typically lead with our hearts, mm-hmm. and that's important. But there has to be a medium with that um, and wisdom. So I would definitely say um, to um, to not to practice self care and to not do things beyond the scope of what we can do as an organization. So what about um, earlier you mentioned um, having to be in the room with the CEO or Mm -hmm. be the CEO in the room and having to deal with people like thinking about you in your past life. Mm -hmm. How would you encourage others to overcome that? Because there's plenty of black, you know, women CEOs that are dealing with that uh, as we speak. Show up. Know that we are the most powerful beings on this universe right now. And to connect with other women to affirm that daily. Because if not, like, we would continue to be in shadows. And that's not where we need to be. So, it's plenty of times where I walk somewhere and I have to literally talk to myself. Like, you can do this. Like, you are valued. You are affirmed. And not be ashamed to do that and to connect with other women that can support and empower you and to hold you accountable to being who you know that you were designed to be. Yeah. I think creating that network is so important and we we know it but we don't utilize it because yeah, you need it. Across and yeah. yeah, instead of yeah. Uh, yeah. you know ne- networking up is beneficial. Issa said that she said that yeah. um, and I and I think that is very important like you said networking across yeah. instead of networking up. Yep. Um so we talked about scandal earlier before we cut on the the mic <laughs> but um what are some of your favorite shows or what are some things that help you kind of just remove yourself from the, the world, whether it be books, music, right, movies, whatever? So right now I'm watching like Jessica Jones on okay. Netflix. <laughs> and so like I, I like superhero movies. Like I said, in my life, if I, I superhero, I, I like superhero. Do you watch Black Lightning? Um, yes. I my like- mama, we were watching it last night and we didn't realize it took us a second. I was turned around and she was like, hey, Scooter. And I looked back and I was like, so that was what I would say like I like to watch movies I like to read like self-help books mm-hmm. like um like um, um leadership you know leader mm-hmm. by mistake I'm um, like you are a badass like mm-hmm. these th- like stop downing yourself and start living your life like I like to read books like that yeah um and movies and then also being around my friends like I'm very um I'm a very introverted person Mm -hmm. which means that I'm very loyal so like my friends are like such great rocks to me and so um yeah so you um earlier you said that you're a writer too and with reading the Mm self-help books is it in the plans to write one Yes, I do plan to write a book actually this year. And so I am definitely, that's actually something that is a, a huge desire of mine. And so if the creek don't rise, <laughs> yeah, that's a goal of mine. <laughs> um, so founder and CEO, you've, you've tackled this big hurdle that I know a lot of people want to uh, or aspire to get to. What's next for you? Like what's the next step? 
Um, well, I would love to grow my organization to a point where I don't have to be there to run it. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to be able to use the model that we have and iterate it in other communities um, to document it and use it as a model, as an effective model to end youth homelessness in our community. But I also like to be a college professor. Um, I would like to teach. I want to continue to travel. I do travel a lot. Um, that's something that I would love to continue to do, but on a larger scale to do more speaking engagements. I want to have like a lot of kids. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to have them like physically have them, but I want to adopt a lot of kids. Um, I always envision myself being like a community mom. Aww. And so, yeah, I, yeah. You gotta have her back for a speaking engagement. <laughs> yes. yes, absolutely. So, where do you think our generation, and I mean millennials, where do you think we are needed in Detroit the most? Midtown and downtown, um, and in the neighborhoods. I I, yeah. I think that we a we need to disrupt spaces that we are not represented. Yes, right? absolutely. Um, and <laughs> B, we need to we need to infiltrate spaces where we aren't there. Absolutely. So I think a lot of us we moved out of the communities. Mm-hmm. Um, myself included. I'm guilty of that. I moved out of the hood and I moved to Midtown um, and I but my my organization is in yeah. the real Detroit um, and so I definitely think that we are needed like we are so needed in this resurgence mm-hmm. um, because we were here when there was nothing yeah right our parents we saw our parents struggle mm-hmm. you know and for us to be kind of to, for me, I can only speak for myself. For when I had came, when I came back to Detroit, and I saw so many people that did not look like me getting positions that were higher paying, they were buying these properties that I didn't have necessarily have access to. It felt very unjust. So I think, um, and I'm speaking specifically for to black for black millennials, yeah. is that we need to show up. You know, we need to galvanize and put our resources together to be able to to combat like the gentrification that's happened and systemic racism that is very evident you know right now in the city of Detroit and to bridge the gap between these this tale of two cities that we have because we're the only ones I believe that can do it and can do it effectively because not only can we speak to the before I mean not only can we speak to the after because we see it but we can speak to the before I feel like that's a lot of things that Boomers forget black and white right. that we were also there for the tail end mm-hmm. of like of um, well I don't say I the dark ages saying, of but yeah, like with the housing crisis <laughs> yeah. and the educational crisis mm-hmm. like we saw the in. tail end of that yeah. like yeah. we were there as well and I forget a lot I think that a lot of them forget that yep um, like a lot of us yeah. were in high school graduating high yep. school coming into college with yeah. this mm-hmm. housing crisis looming over our heads the shortage right. of jobs we graduate and don't Next have any like job the, prospects the recession yeah. yeah we saw it like yep. I don't um, know for me it was more of like how I saw it impacting my mom yeah. you know what I'm saying I mean, like even it, just it that went proximity, from yeah. you know going to get our hair done every two mm-hmm. weeks our nails done and it was like okay girl we're gonna go like once a month yeah and then yeah. sometimes it would be just me going and not her yeah. you know what i'm saying but i didn't realize it until i was older that mm-hmm. these these were as a result of what was happening to yeah. our our and i think for a lot of people like we didn't realize how much the adults in our lives sheltered us mm-hmm. from what was really we happening yeah for sure until we became older and looked back and realized like wow like these things were getting these things were piling on you know job crisis housing crisis financial crisis and we didn't really experience the brunt of that because we had you know that support yeah and um, I, I would I would piggyback off that and then I will also say um 
because you know Detroit is a predominantly black city but now you know we're seeing in certain pockets of Detroit is um, highly gentrified mm-hmm. I think to be able to identify those allies and to be able to work mm-hmm. with them to to rebuild you mm-hmm. know in a way, way that's effective because when we're talking about tackling like racism and even implicit bias like some of that on well a lot of that onus is on people that aren't of color right so to be able to educate them and to inform them and, and to allow them well we don't have to allow anybody mm-hmm. but the people that understand that you know that is safe into those spaces t- to be able to serve as an ally and you said you said uh earlier like infiltrating and disrupting these spaces and i think it's so funny um like when we go to queen's bar and queen's bar is downtown you know right across from the ymca it's funny the looks you get like, when you when walk in like so you ain't supposed to be there right like, and it's like I, I was never I was never ever forget that moment I I I was working in Corktown. I worked as a college coordinator for a nonprofit organization which by the way didn't have any other people of color and mm-hmm. all we served was people of color <laughs> um, and I walked into a restaurant and that's when it became real to me when I was the only person of color I remember growing up here in the city not even knowing that white people existed right. for real right. <laughs> so and then to walk into these spaces and feel like I don't belong, belong that is when it became that's when it became real to me mm-hmm. and that's why I was like oh the climate is shifting and then yeah. I started to you know that's uh, when it hurts yeah, yeah. walk into like Hollywood and mm-hmm. you know then you begin to see you know and then even just little stuff like living in Midtown is so different from when I lived in you know the Fitzgerald neighborhood where I caught the police they didn't show up mm-hmm. I don't gotta call, call the police because they sitting outside my house they saw her <laughs> they, they waiting right for there. something to happen so it's it's different it's definitely different um and I don't think that your quality of life should only improve when you move out of when you mm-hmm. move out of places the neighborhood yeah the, the neighborhoods yeah. yeah um I, I definitely think that it, we need to to be more a part of that um and buying up the properties and yeah yeah that's a longer conversation <laughs> so this is the question everybody dreads yeah but where do you see yourself in five years and where do you see yourself at the end of your career um i don't see it right now i mean honestly i'm going to be honest i don't know um right now I'm running an organization and so that's where I see myself in five years I of course you know would like to have a family um the challenge with achieving what people deem as success Mm -hmm. right at a young age is that you you're there and you gotta continue to try to top whatever you already did you know But I don't want to live my life like that. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite authors, Brene Brown, and she talks about just being like intentional, being mindful of the space that you're in. Mm-hmm. And I spent so much of my life because I had experienced so much trauma, because I always had to have my stuff together, because I, if I made a mistake, I didn't have anybody to fall back on. I spent so much of my life planning my life. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in a place where I can still plan strategically, but also just to be in the moment and to joy and to to enjoy the now mm-hmm. and that's really honestly the space that I'm in right now yeah and I'm okay with and I'm fully content in that space but from an organizational standpoint we do gotta find your capacity building plan <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's what you wanna hear 
<laughs> but no, I think that's important because we, um, I think that a lot of times when millennials get to a certain point, like when we reach 25, mm-hmm. we think that we're supposed to always have it together. Yeah. Have it together. Mm-hmm. And we're supposed to, like everything is supposed to be planned out. We're right. supposed to have this done, this done, this done. And we are always measuring ourselves against one another or tracking this invisible blueprint. Right. And then it's like, one day you wake up and it's like, what like what am I and sometimes you like I don't have it together I'm not gonna have it together like I'm taking it one day at a time it is what it is and even that's hard to accept like because you you fight wanting to take it one day at a time you think you're supposed to have it together yeah but I I would like sometimes I say I'm like in my 20s like but really in my 40s so (laughs) I think for me it's a little different because I because doing this work kind of ages you so I just be like okay let me just chill out so I'm actually kind of glad that I'm in a space finally where I can say like I'm okay with with saying I'm gonna be on the track that I'm on now yeah and that's another thing with millennials because we we don't know I think because we've had so much freedom many of us don't know about like long suffering and like longevity we've seen our parents like work the same job for like 10 or 15 years and we're like oh hell no we're not gonna do that so we shy away and we turn away from those things but then also we wonder why the things that we're doing is not yielding anything tangible is because there's a value in in long suffering there's a value with sticking to something and waiting until you produce some fruit Mm -hmm. as opposed to like just jump into the next thing so that's another to answer that question too (laughs) okay so our last official question if you could switch places with somebody famous or not for one week who would it be and you get all you get all you get all the positives so money fame whatever but you also get all of the negatives too I would have to say Jesus, and I'm not trying to be, like, hyper, like, (laughs) you know, religious or anything, but I would definitely have to say Jesus. Um, I would, I would like to, yeah. That's interesting, because I probably, this is going to sound bad. I, Jesus would probably be the last person that I picked. Yeah. Just because I just looking his I, I, don't, yeah. I don't have it in me to be as patient as he was, as loving as he was, as kind as he is. You know, all he kind of, I don't And that's I don't why I it. said that I would be because he like I, I believe that I wouldn't have to be because it wouldn't be me anymore. I would be I just be Jesus. Like it wouldn't be me. I couldn't be Jesus, but Jesus could be Jesus. Could be Jesus. So yeah. So okay. So Courtney, I turn water into wine. I probably be walking on every puddle of water. So Courtney, how can people volunteer at the Detroit Phoenix or donate? Yes, yes, yes. So um, right now we're revamping our website, but Mm -hmm. we do have PayPal, um, which is one way to donate. But we also are always accepting in-kind donations. We're building out a food pantry right now, so we have a huge need for like non-perishable food items. Mm -hmm. So that's a big thing. Um, If people are interested in volunteering, um, they do have to go through a process. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that they email us at info at DetroitPhoenixCenter.org. Um, again, that is info at DetroitPhoenixCenter.org. Um, we're very flexible to volunteer opportunities, but there is a process because we work with a very vulnerable population, mm-hmm. so they would need to pass a background check. Um, and if for groups that are interested in volunteering, they can just send us an email. Like, we cannot do the work we do without volunteers, so we definitely are like, 
volunteer champions. So, <laughs> well, Courtney, we want to thank you for coming and having yeah. such a great conversation yeah. with yeah. us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Such a needed uh, topic that needs to be addressed. And the more millennial voices that we have on the topic, the more attention can mm-hmm. be placed mm-hmm. on it. So, we definitely want to thank you from the new kids. Um, and just uh, for our listeners, go ahead and drop your website one more time, your email, and any mm-hmm. social media that you want to yep. shout out. So, Detroit Phoenix Center, www.detroitphoenixcenter.org. That e- um, that's the website. The email is info at detroitphoenixcenter.org. Our Instagram is Detroit Phoenix Center. Our Facebook page is Detroit Phoenix Center. <laughs> um, but me personally, my Instagram is Justice Court, and my Facebook is Courtney Ebonique Smith. Right. And I don't have a Twitter, um, but I have a LinkedIn as well. All right, y'all. So get them, uh, what's it, endorsements up on yeah. LinkedIn? LinkedIn. <laughs> I love endorsements. Um, so, yeah. Uh, of course, as always, you can find us uh, at The New Kids LLC on Twitter and Instagram mm-hmm. and yeah, Facebook. Facebook. <laughs> um, our website is thenewkidsdetroit.com. You can find us on SoundCloud at The New Kids Detroit and on iTunes and Stitcher at The New Kids LLC. Um, anything else? You can email us at the new kids yes. at gmail.com. Yes. <laughs> um, Shariah put our personal social media ads on the timeline today. So I did. I watched y'all yeah, all the way did. out. She mm-hmm. called us out on social I did. media. So. I really do have to clean up my ass though now. So if you wanna, I should protect my page again. They should know by now. I feel like they, they know. To, it's been a whole season. This is season two, baby. This they, is season two. So they got a good idea. If they found your social media last season, there's no point in cleaning it up. Now. I've been tainted. <laughs> um. So yeah, another great new kids episode. Um. We out. We out. Peace.